0: Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson.
1: Welcome. Links to connect with us through Facebook, Instagram and Twitter are at bleedingdaylight.net. As you listen, think about people you know who need to hear this episode and then share however you can. Today's guest found herself as a single mum homeless and continuously being stalked. In a moment she'll talk about overcoming the dysfunction and abuse. Dr Mel Tavares is a wife, mum, grandma, author, teacher and speaker. She holds a doctorate of ministry in pastoral care and counselling. Mel is a board-certified mental health coach, a suicide prevention instructor, and is a certified professional life coach. On the surface, it may sound like she's living an incredible life, but the truth is that she has walked some very difficult roads to get there. She's my guest on Bleeding Daylight today. Mel, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you for having me, Rodney.
1: Much of your time these days is spent helping others, but it's Probably helpful to understand where your desire to help began. Let's go back to your earliest years. Tell me what life was like for you growing up. Well, I
0: think that I thought it was normal, but I realized as I got older that it was anything but normal. So my parents had my brother, sister, and myself, all as teenage parents. And you can imagine they were not very well equipped to be parents at that age, so, my dad worked away. My mom was home. She turned to alcohol, cigarettes, and romance novels to try to cope with three kids in diapers and still 19 years old herself. When my dad would come home on the weekends, they partied more. We were kind of left to raise ourselves. We had an aunt who was intervening. She came back from Spain to kind of corral everything and take care of us as best as she could from, you know, living a few miles away. But it was very different than, I realize now, very different than my classmates.
1: And it's an interesting point that you raise, saying that you lived what you thought was normal. And so often when I talk to people, I do ask the question, when did you realize it was not normal? Because we only know the life that we grow up in. So when did it dawn for you that this was just not how things would normally go for someone growing up?
0: I think when I went to high school, I had a different mix of people. Our, our high school was not just our little village. All of a sudden, we were with nine or 10 other towns. I met a lot of people who were living a very different life, and they started talking about going to college and things that I had never really heard of or thought about. And so I decided I don't have to live this way, even if I'm in this family. It's not that I despise them or don't love them. It's just that I want something more. And that was not well-received within my family
1: either, I'll say. And it must be difficult when you have parents who obviously are trying to do their best in one way or another, and yet their inexperience as parents, being just teens themselves, meant that it was a difficult road for you. I suppose that they weren't able to really model what life should be like. And so when you're wanting to take a different route, it's very difficult for them as well, isn't it?
0: It was, and uh, you know, I'll say that my mom had dropped out of high school. She was a straight A student, but she had dropped out of high school because she was pregnant and about to give birth to my sister. My dad had only finished eighth grade. He ended up being an engineer and doing very well, but he just didn't have the education. So it was kind of a slap in the face for them to think, particularly my mom, about somebody moving on and going to college. And and it was like, do you think you're better than us? My answer was, no, I just want something more.
1: And how was it for your siblings at this stage? As they're growing up around you, was there a sense in which they're realizing that this is not normal as well, and they're taking different paths in life?
0: I'm not really sure. My sister followed my mom's footsteps, but I'll say pretty much everybody around There were a lot of teenage mothers, and my sister became a teenage mother also directly out of high school, got married right out of high school, and all of that. My brother went into the Air Force, but he struggled and still does with alcohol because that's what he grew up in, so he became an alcoholic. Yeah, I always labeled myself the black sheep of the family.
1: (laughs) And where did life take you from, from that point? You have had a less than perfect upbringing, and we know that there is dysfunction in every family. It's really the the degree to which it changes is the difference between families, but obviously some, some big issues here that you're dealing with. Where did life take you after that?
0: Well, one of the things that happened was that I had no guidance in terms of dating, who I should date, who I should marry, should I marry, and I followed the footsteps of everyone around. I'm like, of course you you're less than if you don't have a steady boyfriend or engaged or married by the time you're eighteen years old. Even though I was going to college, I did get engaged. I did not choose wisely. That proved to be a struggle for the next twenty five years until we divorced and four kids later. But throughout that time I did a couple of things. One, I continued my career path despite the dysfunction in our own home by then. The second thing that I did is of course, I'm so grateful I met the Lord. So that
1: came a mainstay for me. How far into this dysfunctional marriage did you come to faith? When was it that you you met Jesus as part of that life?
0: Seven years. You know what had happened was I was doing very well career wise. So despite the dysfunctional marriage, I made a lot of money. I was working for the state, just doing a lot of things. And so I had a house and cars and things that my peers did not have that I had grown up with. And so there was that quest for the American dream. And when I got it, I was so empty. And I was like, this is what life is. I'm 27 at that point. I'm 27 years old. I, I have houses and cars and dogs and kids and a husband and a career and all of this. And it's so empty. There's got to be more. So I started searching. And I remembered that way back in the day when I was younger, my parents, in their desire to party all weekend, would let me go with my grandmother for the weekend, my mom's mom. And she was a believer and she took me to church. And so I remembered watching these Billy Graham shows and different things. And so one day when I was at work and feeling very empty, I noticed on my employee's desk she had a Billy Graham How To Be Born Again book. Like any good heathen, I stole it off her desk and went home and read it and accepted the Lord that night just sitting in my living room by myself.
1: Never underestimate the power of a praying grandma, hey? That's exactly right. That's why I pray for mine. It's interesting that as these things are happening seven years into this marriage, which lasted for 25 years and there's dysfunction in the marriage. What did it do for your marriage? What did you think at that time? Did you think, well, I need to continue in this, or what was the thought for you at that stage?
0: I thought, Rodney, that I would just pray and he would come to the Lord and our lives would get fixed, because it had for me. That did not happen, and it it just progressively got worse as we got older, as children got older, as there were more children. I was in a small church, and my pastor was fabulous, but there were some women there who, I'll say, tried to mentor me, and they were much, much older than me. And they would say, you just keep praying, and you'll win him over. And I would explain that there was some very abusive situations going on, and they would be like, well, you just keep praying. So I did until it wasn't safe anymore, and then I left, and I found out later that many of them we're in the same situation. Domestic violence is a very prevalent thing in our area in that state. A lot of them in the church, they were being abused or mistreated by their own husbands who were all Christians.
1: And that puts a very different slant on it as well, that if these men who claiming to know Christ are acting in this way, there's this Thing that we hear in churches again and again and again, where women are told to stay in dysfunctional or abusive marriages. So I suppose that now that you're able to help others, you're able to speak very wisely into those sorts of situations, as difficult as they are. Indeed.
0: Nobody wants divorce. And I think that, you know, that's why I stayed. I thought it'd be better for me, for my children, for even my now ex husband. I thought it would be better to stay. You know, we'll work it out. We'll work it out. Because I didn't want to be one of those people that, those people, right, that ended up in a divorce. Now I do coach and counsel other women who are in similar situations. A lot of times people stay because they don't know what else to do. And I'm able to look back and give them wisdom that I did not employ myself when I got out. I just kind of got in the car and left. I don't recommend that. I recommend some other things. I would be a little more prepared than I was. I ended up single mom and homeless and moving several states away and starting over. I don't think that all women have to do that now, or men. There are men that are in similar situations.
1: And that must have been very difficult to then continue life. You had been successful. You had the spoils of, of being successful, the American dream, and yet it's starting to fall apart as as you leave. What was your thought process at that stage? What did you start to do at that point?
0: Well, in Psalm 27, it says, I would have despaired if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what I clung to. I'm like, well, Lord, if you don't get me through this, I'm I'm not only am I doomed, but what, what about my children that I'm now Fully responsible for. And he did. I took a position at a Christian campground and started just serving the Lord, serving other people. And I just dove in. And then the Lord brought my now husband a couple of years into that. We met on a missions trip. We got engaged and got married. That meant moving another hour further south. And when I did, I got involved with the church I'm in now. I went to Bible school. I had always wanted to go to Bible school, so I went to Bible school part-time while I was still raising kids for six or seven years, and eventually ended up getting my doctorate. It's completely changed. Everything has changed.
1: I guess we all love the story where things tend to work out or seemingly work out in the end. But I'm wondering about that in between stage when you're meeting your now husband who has stuck by you over the last 15 years, and you speak very highly of. But I, I'm wondering what it was like for you in learning to trust again, in that you had trusted before, and to some degree, you're trusted being betrayed. What was it like for you learning to trust again?
0: Well, it's it's been a road. I didn't have any problem trusting him or trusting the Lord in the situation because I had really put out a ridiculous fleece, you know, we're told not to do that, but I did. And I said, all right, Lord, if I'm going to step out again, I don't like the dating world. I don't know anything about it. I'm, you know, I haven't been in it for, since I was a high schooler, I made a list, a very lengthy, like four pages long list of all the qualities I would want in a mate if I were ever to get married again. I showed it to a friend of mine, and he said, oh, that's my friend Joe. And I said, that's ridiculous. Nobody has this list. Then he showed it to his wife without saying anything else, and she said, oh, that's our friend Joe. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Don't try to matchmake me. Then months went by, and we ended up on that missions trip. So when I did actually start to have conversations with him, I realized that the Lord actually had shown me exactly the person that I had written on that piece of paper, just didn't know his name.
1: I'm interested if you can cast your mind back to what was going through your mind at the time that you wrote that list. Was it really in some way a protection to say, look, I'm going to write down all these things. There's no way that this person's out there so I can protect myself. Or were you actually hoping to find Joe, to find someone who could meet all the criteria on that list?
0: Oh, no, it was the first comment you made. It was definitely, this person doesn't exist, and therefore, I don't have to worry about it, but everybody's expecting that I'm going to, at some point in my life, start dating again, so I'm going to write this entirely lengthy list that no one actually
1: can meet. And it just shows that God has a great sense of humor. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous, actually. (laughs) I mean, it is wonderful that uh, life has changed for you. As you say, you continue to study. When was it that you decided that you wanted to use your experiences of the past to help others and to really jump into that full time?
0: I think I always had like in a small circle of friends. Remember, I said that in that area that I was living in, it's a different culture. It's a very difficult road. There's a lot of drugs and alcohol and, and Dysfunction, so a lot of my I'll say mom friends were in similar situations, so I called it coffee cup counseling. I would have them over to my house and kids would play, and I would talk these women through things. So when I stabilized myself, so I would say after I was remarried, I'm a strong believer in whatever we've been through, whatever experiences we've had, God wants to use that to help us to minister to the next people, so I really. I dove in, and I did read a book, Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, if you're familiar with that book at all. yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, that revolutionized my life. I taught it in my church as a Bible study for a while before I had moved. That really dug deep into my soul. Like, But you have to be willing to be transparent like I am doing right now. Not everybody's willing to do that. They kind of want to lock the closet and forget about it.
1: I'm wondering, going back to that earlier discussion, talking about whether to stay in a dysfunctional marriage or leave, because it seems that there are a couple of different ways that people will act in this way. There are some who will give the advice that those ladies at the church gave you, and that is just to keep praying that God will change it and that you have to stick in there no matter what. There are other people, on the other hand, who just say, oh, look, if you're not happy in a marriage, you just get to walk out the door and leave. We obviously know that the truth is somewhere well in between. When you're talking to women, how do you help them to understand when is the time to stay, when is the time to leave? It has to be rooted in the Word of
0: God. And if there is no biblical grounds, I'll say, for leaving, then I don't advise that. I advise you get some counseling yourself. You try to get your spouse. There's a lot of ways to improve a situation without leaving. But if there's mistreatment and abuse and those sorts of things going on, then by no means do I feel at this point in my game, do I feel like a person should stay. What I say is, you know, maybe you need a time of separation, Maybe you just need to be away from each other for a little bit and let's take it one step at a time. And once they're out of that situation, then you can begin to work on whether or not it's able to be restored or not.
1: There are a lot of counsellors who would be using a a range of counselling techniques and, and a range of ideas that have been built up through academics over, over time. And, and whilst there's great value in that, you rely very heavily on the Scriptures. Do you believe that the Scriptures speak to every situation that we might find ourselves in? Absolutely, I do. I think we have to
0: know the Word of God really well, and we have to know God Himself really well. But I have yet to come across the situation where we can't find Scriptures that give us a direction of which way we're supposed to go.
1: And so, really, it's a matter of reading scripture, and while it might not specifically point to every single case, there's a lot of principles in there that can be applied right across our life.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, there are a lot of great tools out there that will help a person to find those scriptures, and you can go online and Google and do whatever. I acquired fairly recently the new edition of the um, Care and Counseling Bible that the AACC, the American Association of Christian Counselors, which is a global membership. So they have a Care and Counseling Bible that I use daily now. You can look it up topically, pretty much anything that a person might be going through.
1: As you start to talk through situations with women, it must be incredibly empowering for you to see them start to understand the scriptures and see how it applies in their lives. Indeed. I love, I
0: love teaching, whether it's one on one or small groups or a hundred or a thousand, doesn't matter. It's all the same. The transformation that takes place when somebody begins to understand, I do counsel those that are in difficult marriages, but I'm kind of more of a broad brushstroke of mental well being, which nobody can have Positive mental health if they're in a difficult situation. You think you do at the time, but you don't actually. I'm seeing a lot of women with, and men, but I counsel women, anxiety and depression and hopelessness, just a complete hopelessness that nothing can get better to bring them to the point where their eyes are open and they see, oh, I can change these small things and it will lead to bigger things and life actually can get better. That's pretty amazing.
1: And we know that through the period of of COVID, there was an increase in mental health issues of anxiety. Did you certainly see that in your own practice, in working with women? A hundred percent,
0: yeah. And I know it's a global situation, but here where I am, and I say across our country, there is the extremely high, I think we come in like second highest for suicide or highest in suicide rates in the world. The, America is difficult. There's just an overwhelming sense of foreboding almost where people don't have any hope. And I'll say that, you know, I have a 15-year-old granddaughter who spent some time with me over the holidays. And one of the things I said was like, you know, she's she's going to be a sophomore. So I said, hey, what are you thinking about for college? I don't even ask them, are you going? I'm just like, there's an expectation in my voice. Like, what are you thinking about for college? And she said, grandma, there's no point in me going to college because the world is going to be ending by the time I'm 20. And I said, where did you get that idea? And she said, everybody knows that grandma. And I was like, "Uh, no, that's all inaccurate. I had to do a lot of talking to her that's indicative of what I hear often in different ways, but that's kind of the attitude and the hopelessness that people have of like, it's all going to be blowing up anyway. So what's the point?
1: Where do you think these messages are coming from? We often very quickly point to things like social media, but is is it all in that? Is it just our attitudes have changed or, or is it the fact that we have denied the place of God in our lives, and we are looking for the hope that he brings us in other places.
0: Yeah, I think that you're accurate in saying if you're not looking up, then you're looking somewhere else, right? And so people do not have the relationship with the Lord that our generations might have. Like The younger people today don't even know who God is. It's kind of becoming, and I'll say globally, a godless society in many places. And so they try to figure out on their own, like, what, are th- you know, what's life going to look like? And I think that everybody has this idea in their mind, it might be a different idea for each person, but everybody has an idea of like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to do this and this and this. And then when they're 20, they're like, oh, by the time I'm 30, I'll have achieved these things. And by the time I'm 40, I'll achieve these things. We're in a little bit of a, a an ever changing chaotic world. Hopes and dreams are kind of dashed as the Lord is maneuvering things around, and not everybody is flexible enough. So when they realize, oh, I can't do this anymore, it brings a hopelessness. And I can give you an example. My son went to college, and he was planning, he was in criminal justice, he was planning on doing bail bonds. When the pandemic hit, we started using GPS trackers like ankle cuffs or whatever to track people rather than doing bail bonds because you couldn't go to their homes and, and bring them back to court or whatever, he said to me, my career is gone. It's gone, 90% gone in just a matter of months. So I said, well, what are you going to do now? That's true. The world changed. Technology changed your career goal. And so what are you going to do now? And not every parent would say that to their kids and not everybody has someone in their life to say that to them. So that's kind of some of the coaching that I end up doing is like, well, that was then and this is now and now what are you going to do?
1: We know that in years past, if you asked a young child what are they going to be when they grow up, you might get a, a range of different answers and there'd be so many different professions that each one would choose. And yet, increasingly, when young people are asked these days, what do you want to be when you grow up, it's quite simple. It's, I want to be famous. There's this clawing for recognition and almost wanting to be worshipped in the way that we should be worshipping God. Do you think that this is adding to the emptiness that our young people are feeling?
0: Yes. And I think to your earlier point about social media, it is a heavy influencer no matter what platform we're talking about, kids are on social constantly. They do get into that comparison game and they think that their fulfillment is gonna be not just in the recognition, but the money and the size of home that they have and where they travel to. And, oh, that person went to Italy and this person went here and this person went there. And I'm just stuck in my little town. And so again, it adds to that hopelessness. They don't understand the value of contributing to the community that they're living in.
1: And there is obviously a lack of transparency in social media because we're seeing the highlight reel. We're not seeing the difficult times in people's lives, are we? Uh, That's the truth. If we ever were able to look
0: behind the scenes of some of the people, then we would know that
1: they're not much different than we are. I'm interested in the different things that you have done to reach out and help people. Obviously, there is your face-to-face counseling that you're able to do, but for people right around the world, there's the books that you've written, you've written a blog, and so there's opportunities for people to benefit from your experience. Tell me about the the process of, of writing those books. What was behind that for you? Well,
0: I use them as tools because I can't be everywhere at all points in time. Only God can, right? He's omnipresent, omniscient. And so I wanted, in each of the cases of something that I was writing, it's, and even when I blog or I put out a social post or whatever, it's to reach further than I can as one person. So it can kind of expand my reach, if you want to call it that, so that other people have some of the insight that I've gained over the years without having to be in my counseling or coaching
1: presence. And as we look back at how life really started out for you and where you are now, and we're not going to, to say that your life is perfect now because we know and the discussion we've already had that that no one's life is perfect, but it's certainly on a much more even footing these days. If you could speak to that person all those years ago, what would you tell them about how life was going to pan out for them?
0: I think I would say you got to really go after The heartbeat and passion of who you are and who God created you to be, and not let fear stand in the way. Listen to the wise counsel of others around you and not think that you know it all. Don't walk down some roads that inside don't feel very good, but you keep going anyway. Those are not wise decisions. Those are just like, well, you're going headlong into the wrong direction. So listen to your instinct. Obviously, it starts with the Lord, but even for somebody that doesn't know the Lord, it's got to be, you got to listen to the wise people around you that are in the position that you want to
1: be in and follow them. And what is the balance for you in your counseling between those who know the Lord and those who don't? Are you able to offer hope to those people who don't yet know Jesus?
0: Yes, because I spent the first 30 years working in the secular arena, not in the Christian arena, all of my career up until a few years ago, was in the secular arena. And you can instill biblical principles, and you know that does not change whether we quote the scripture or not. We can talk about those principles, and that's what brings the hope. So, it's it's still giving them the Word of God. It's just not telling them you're giving them the Word of God.
1: And I'm sure that there are those who you've started to counsel who want to know a little bit more about where this advice is coming from and would give you a wonderful opportunity to share your faith? If
0: they ask, they have to ask first. If it's a, a person who's not a believer, I minister almost exclusively now to Christians because I'm keenly aware that there are a lot of believers sitting in our churches who are struggling with all the same things we've just been talking about, they just don't tell anybody because they're either ashamed or it's not a positive thing in a lot of congregations to be able to be talking about people's mental health issues and struggles with anxiety and fear. And if you know the Lord, you're not supposed to have fear. You're not supposed to be anxious. And of course, that's true at its deepest root, but it's a tough world we're living in and people are struggling. So I am almost exclusively ministering to people who are believers now,
1: if people are wanting to get hold of your books to to read your blog posts or connect with you, what's the easiest way they can do that?
0: I would say go to the website. That's the be all and end all. You can get the, you know, my contact information, book information, follow the blogs, do whatever. That is com, and that is the easiest way to reach me for anything, including if somebody wanted coaching or wanted me to come
1: and speak or any number of things, that's that's the central location. And I will put a link to the website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find you easily. Mel, it has been a real delight to talk to you. We've covered a lot of ground, and I just want to thank you again for all the work you do for so many people who are able to see the light starting to stream through, able to be connected to the hope that comes from knowing Jesus. And it's been such a a wonderful opportunity to talk to you about such a range of issues. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rodney, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight, please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.